Well, Helen said we're only allowed to come here if we provoke you. So we're going to start off uh, with some provocations. Um, and I'm going to ask you some questions when we're talking about women as leaders. What is it when people look at women that they don't see? What is it that isn't seen in women in terms of leadership potential? And then why don't they actually see this? And what do current practices reveal and obscure about leadership? And now, what we found in this project, and I found in work that I did before, um, it's not just about making women intelligible as leaders and making people think of women as potential leaders. But there's also a two-way gaze. Uh, the establishment looks at women and dismisses them as leaders, but women are looking at leadership and often dismissing it. So how are women being seen in the leadership stakes? Are they being seen always as deficit men, second-class citizens? But how are women viewing leadership? And we've already had quite a lot of Judith Butler today, but her concept of unlivable lives. Does leadership involve the living of unlivable lives? And then what are these narratives that circulate about women's capabilities? Uh, we've already had from Saida and Victoria uh, the, 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 the observation that you're too nice. Yeah? So what is there about the, the cultural prescriptions for leadership? And then what narratives circulate about leadership itself? What constitutes the ideal leader? And why does it continue to be so heavily gendered? Well, what we found in this project in South Asia, we'll tell you a little bit about the methodology uh, later, was that when we uh, interviewed women from six countries in South Asia, most of the time when they talked about leadership, there was a very heavy affective narrative. Uh, their feelings, their fears, their anxieties, their desires. So they didn't really talk about the actual functionalities of the job or about their qualifications or about their skills and competences. It was the feelings about the, the leadership that dominated most of the narratives, which made Barbara and I think that there's obviously a framework here that we could use in terms of the effective economy of higher education leadership. And we drew very heavily on Sarah Ahmed's work, among others. But if you think about how uh, the whole Cartesian dualism, you know, this binary between mind and body, uh, it still rules, it still dominates higher education in many countries, that higher education is associated with the life of the mind. Uh, you must have no body, no needs, no feelings. You should be able to transcend all of that. And uh, anything to do with uh, the emotional life, the affective world, is devalued. But it has become revisited, uh, and as we said, Sarah Ahmed is one that's been looking at it very closely. And she uses this lovely verb about stick, sticky, stickiness. And what, what happens is that certain feelings, certain emotions, get attached, they stick to some bodies and not others. So, for example, what we're saying is that the uh, authority doesn't stick to women. And frequently, women in our study were saying how they had to 
overworked like crazy in order to establish any sort of authority. And they went into every situation in deficit because people didn't give them any credibility for their authority. So the, effect of, uh, the affect is a form of capital. It's something that you can make really work. We heard all, you, you hear all this about charisma training and leadership, etc. So the affect has a value. And it's, it, it's intensified and it accrues value through circulation. And Sarah Ahmed's key argument about affect is that it's not something you have. It's something that is constantly circulating. So if you get treated uh, with disrespect, it will bring up all kinds of feelings that make you question your own uh, status and eligibility and, and efficacy. And it's integral to the production of social and material realities. So what are we basing all of this on? Is it all in our heads? Well, we did get collect quite a bit of evidence, and it was not easy, as um, Barbara will tell you later. But we conducted a, an extensive literature and policy review, a statistical review, which was very hard because there were so few statistics, uh, 30 interviews, um, 19 women, 11 men, and these were the six South Asian countries. And they're hugely different. <laughs> when people talk about South Asia as one unit of analysis, don't believe them. Um, it, they're hugely different in terms of the status, the power, the higher education sector. India is about to have the biggest higher education sector in the world, uh, numerically uh, speaking. And the power is very new to higher education and has had even more setbacks since we did this with the uh, with, the, with, with all the, the damage to the infrastructure, the universities have been closed. So huge differences in South Asia. Sri Lanka uh, had the very first ever female head of state, and there's quite a lively discourse there around gender, and a, a lot of discursive space for, for gender, and actually some statistics. Uh, whereas the other countries talk a lot about gender, but don't always collect the data. So masses of variation we found. We asked a whole range of questions, but just to summarise, what makes leadership attractive or unattractive? What enables or supports women to enter leadership? And personal experiences. Now, a big question is where are the women? Um, Barbara must have looked at every single website <laughs> in, the, in, in the region. Uh, and her office is next to mine, and we we're always you know, meeting in the corridor saying, well, have you, have you found anything? No, I've been here, I've been there, I've been somewhere else. There were no gender disaggregated statistics for higher education. Quite a lot for schools, uh, particularly basic education, because that's linked so much to the Millennium Goals. And just as an interesting aside, you know that the yeah, the, 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 post, the 2015 post um, agenda again has ignored higher education. So we are being completely cut out of the global policy discourse on, on, on uh, gender and participation as a sector. Um, we found there were no linear trends in women's representation. You know, there's this, this metaphor that's used all the time, pipeline theory, and it's very neat and very linear. And I get told, just be patient, they're there, they'll come through. That's not the case. That is not the case. You cannot say that. Uh, when you look at the, the statistics we did find. The number of female academics certainly have increased, uh, but the gender distribution of male to female academics remains unchanged. 
huge differences around disciplines. Um, obvious, <laughs> obvious uh, horizontal segregation, and uh, m most uh, <coughs> women found in social sciences and humanities. And uh, the obvious one again is absence from any kind of senior leadership. So women are entering, they're entering largely as students, but they're not getting promoted once they're graduated uh, to leaders. And one of the issues I think that's very dominant in higher education policy and gender globally is that the policymakers think because you have lots of women as undergraduates, you don't need to worry about gender anymore. So gender is seen very much as a noun in higher education policy internationally. It's not seen as a verb. And if you get any quantitative change at undergraduate level, that's gender done and dusted. For, forget it now and we'll move on to some other uh, concern. Now, one of the things that we found with, the, with policies, there were some major silences. Um, gender, only the staff, uh, sorry, only the students were, were gendered, not the staff. Uh, these were, staff were these shadowy, disembodied figures that had, no, that had absolutely no gender identification. But all the emphasis was on the students. And uh, tremendous celebration that so many more women had entered now, we hear all the time about the Asian century in higher education. And one of the big success stories is about how many more women are entering. But what is happening to those women once they enter? And what happens to them when they leave higher education? They very rarely have the same employability opportunities. And certainly in terms of the universities, they're not getting into senior positions. Um, there's, not, there's currently not one university in South Asia in the top 100 global league tables and this creates enormous pressure uh, they're all desperate to get up there it's very very aspirational particularly in India with this huge expanding uh, higher education sector we couldn't actually uh, keep count of the universities in, in India because they're growing at such a, a rate and it's very similar to when I worked in Africa the private sector is expanding at such a pace uh, that you can't, you just can't get a, an accurate statistic. And they come and they go. The private universities come and go. They're there one week, gone the next. So there's this, if you get this, the picture of this region, massive expansion, massive aspiration, the Asian century, desperate to get up there into the top 100. And so what is the emphasis on? quality not equality and i'm so pleased we have a, a, a colleague from the times higher because i've been in dialogue with you for the last two or three years about the global league tables why do they not have any equality indicators in them so it's quite possible for universities to be right up there at the top but have some of the most appalling records on gender equality or any sort of equality and harvard is a really good example it's always up there in the top 10 2005, there was Larry Summers, was the director. What was the statement he made? That women were intrinsically incapable of doing science. So it's quite possible for universities to be right at the top of their, of their field without giving any attention whatsoever to gender equality. And in our own country, some, uh, you asked about the statistics earlier, 20% uh, of, of professors are female in Britain. Oxford has 9%. So... You, you get you get the picture. So everything the emphasis is on quality 
and the knowledge economy and good governance and science and the digital economy. So it's all about these indicators of detraditionalization, modernization, getting in there, playing with, uh, yeah, playing the, 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 a role in the league tables. Now another major silence is huge lack of research-based evidence. And we've scoured the literature and what most of the literature tends to be lone, small-scale, unfunded studies, the odd PhD <laughs> thesis or sometimes a master's thesis, very, very rarely included in big international studies uh, on gender. Uh, when the, the region is included in international studies, these are gender-free, gender-insensitive. These are the big, you know, uh, uh, international projects that don't look at any form of inequality whatsoever. So some big silences there. And I'm going to hand over now to Barbara, who's going to try and tell us where the women actually are. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Lise. So I'm going to take you into the qualitative and uh, quantitative data now. Um, and um, starting first with the uh, the, what quantitative data we were able to access. Um, this slide focuses on uh, the growth uh, in numbers of academics in Afghanistan. And the first comment I have to make is that this data came to us courtesy of the British Council. Uh, this was very late on in the project. We were reporting our inability to f access publicly reported data. And they said, oh, perhaps we can help you find some. So this data they were able to access uh, through uh, internal sources. Uh, but there is a big lack of publicly reported data, apart, I would say, from uh, Sri Lanka. Now, um, we talked, uh, er Louise talked earlier about the ways the uh, numbers of women in higher education um, are increasing, uh, but the representation is not. And this slide is a clear indication of that in the case of Afghanistan. So the bottom red uh, numbers are for the women, uh, the blue is for the men, um, and the total is the yellow. Uh, but if you look at the, um, uh, the percentages uh, for men and women, the, although there is this growth uh, in numbers of both, uh, the percentage of women's, women's representation has remained static in the period between 2004 and 2012 at roughly uh, just under 15%. Okay? Uh, so women's numbers, uh, raw numbers may be increasing, uh, but the representation is not. We asked the British Council if it was possible to disaggregate these um, figures by employment categories to show uh, levels of, um, or by discipline to show vertical, horizontal, horizontal stratification, but unfortunately that was not possible. So. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have um, moved this on and I have. <laughs> uh, these are the main points that I hope I've made. <laughs> Let's move on again. <laughs> I must remember to do this again. <laughs> Good. Technology is too fast to say. Catch up with me. Um, so this slide is um, uh, showing the horizontal strat stratification. And as Louise said, um, disciplines remain uh, highly stratified. Um, this is from Sri Lanka where uh, the, for uh, a number of years now Sri Lanka has been reporting uh, gender disaggregated um, statistics for different institutions, for different disciplines 
um, and for different employment categories. Uh, so that is the exception in the region. That is. Uh, so these are figures uh, for 2010, 11 and 12. Uh, although they are developing these reports, these are the only reports that were publicly available uh, at the time we were doing our study. Um, so you can see, for example, big differences in the presence of women across uh, different uh, disciplines, particularly their engineering, manufacturing, construction, uh, where women's um, uh, representation falls to around 30%. Um, it's impossible to do a trend analysis from this, but you'll notice how this also disconfirms pipeline theories, how women's numbers rise and then fall uh, fairly erratically. Uh, it's, it's not a steady progression uh, of women uh, if, uh, that you can see from these numbers. And I've done it again. <laughs> there we are, catching up with myself. Uh, so next time I'll try to um, get up to speed. Um, uh, but yes, no linear trends in women's rep representation. Uh, now we go to uh, vertical stratification, number of female academics by academic position. And again, this is from the UGC um, reports in Sri Lanka for the same years, 2010, 11 and 12. Um, you see that there's some, um, some small increases in, in women's um, uh, representation in, um, across in, in the different uh, categories here. Uh, but it's only at um, lecturer level uh, that women are equally represented. And then from senior lecturer uh, onwards, uh, their uh, representation falls quite dramatically. Uh, so that the time we get uh, to the rank of professors, uh, we're hovering around um, the 25, 26, 27% uh, of professors. So there's a strong vertical progression here uh, in, the, in the data. Uh, the associate professor, what isn't shown here, uh, associate professor accounts for only a tiny percentage of women in uh, this, um, uh, uh, in, in Sri Lanka. Um, uh, but it would be interesting to see if that rise uh, does correspond to any uh, later increase in the number of professors. Uh, there seems to be a dramatic rise in associate professors, uh, but it's difficult to uh, make out what that might mean in the, in the future, uh, if anything will dramatically will change when we come to professors uh, a few years, years down the line. Um, but yes, significant gender inequalities at all other levels apart from lecturer level. And then these are figures um, uh, about um, uh, the number of women vice-chancellors, snapshot figures, um, just to show that that fall in women's representation continues, um, uh, and that this is a global problem. Um, uh, these are uh, figures that, um, uh, if you take Norway, the Scandinavian countries, uh, they've always had a strong focus on gender uh, uh, equality for quite a long time, so they have the highest figures. Uh, but still, we can see from these figures we have a, a, a global a global issue here. Um. Now, I want to go on to the interview data um, and the, uh, the the narratives of our thirty respondents. Uh, the key points that I'll be addressing in this are around uh, recruitment and selection how this privileged male cloning um, and um, uh, allowed significant gender inequalities in leadership to uh, continue. Um, 
I'll focus also on research. And here, often because I think we're maybe perhaps focusing on um, how women, uh, the, our respondents were uh, often very senior, uh, already involved uh, in doing significant research, how passionate attachments to the research uh, obstructed um, their pathways to leadership. Uh, I'll talk also about how authority does not stick using Sarah Ahmed's terms to women. Um, and then into the gender divisions of labor. Uh, again, as Saida and Victoria have said, uh, how women are constructed principally in relation to uh, domestic sphere, the private uh, domain. Um, how leadership involved exclusionary networks um, involving, which were male dominated uh, and involved codes of um, uh, sexual propriety often, which uh, excluded women uh, also. And I'll also talk about the toxic, hostile cultures, uh, very masculine cultures um, uh, that were uh, very stressful, uh, that discouraged women uh, from engaging in leadership. So now I'm going to um, give you some a flavor of the interviews themselves. Um, and the first one then is about uh, recruitment. Um, and this one does identify gender power relations quite specifically. Uh, in this uh, female dean from uh, Sri Lanka. Um, it's women and leadership just don't go together. Uh, it does not stick. Uh, men uh, will see men as natural leaders, but not women. Um, so th this other quotation from a Sri Lankan uh, professor um, uh, raises the issue how women are associated with risk and uncertainty in this effective economy. Uh, men are just, they are entitled to be leaders, women are not. Um, so there is an entitlement culture uh, involving knowing one's place. Um, uh, women are not wanted as leaders. Uh, men are seen as the leaders. And then when women do put themselves forward, push themselves forward in the academy, uh, it provokes resistance, jealousy, resentment. Uh, so the, it's, it's not something that comes with, oh, wonderful, you've done so well in doing that. Um, it comes back with a rebuffle. Who do you um, think you are? Yeah, exactly. That's not your place. Who, yeah, how dare you guys challenge the male authority? Coming on to then the research um, uh, issues, um, the, uh, the ways that women that we talk to were committed to the research came across very powerfully. Um, against that, leadership had major disattractions. Um, how could they balance the long hours in the 24-7 culture uh, of, the, univers uh, of the, uh, the universities? How could they balance uh, the work of being uh, a senior leader alongside still maintaining the research? Um, so. Uh, it was a major disincentive. Um, and this other uh, female dean from India, um, again, trying to balance the different pressures within the academy, um, uh, not ready to make the commitment to a leadership role, still committed to uh, their research. Um, in terms of the, uh, the climate of uh, leadership, um, women were in a position of being doubted all the time, of having to prove themselves. 
um, uh, in ways that men did not have to do. Um, uh, he need not prove, a lady has to prove, prove, prove every time. Leadership was associated with, with stress, uh, which made it really unattractive. And because there were so few women in these traditions, it was very lonely for women. Um, uh, so that uh, I'll come to the notion of the, the, the exclusionary uh, work of the kind of networks uh, involved in leadership. But you'll see at the, the final quotation there, um, this female dean in India, uh, how the networking that was associated with, with leadership uh, was a very masculine culture and where women felt uh, lonely and uh, really not part of that. Um, another key aspect that uh, came across uh, in the data, um, this links to the notion of what is appropriate for women and what is not appropriate uh, for women. Uh, leadership was associated with politics very much across the region. Uh, appointments often were very directly uh, political uh, in the sense of uh, national politics, not just the, the, the micro-politics, but national-level politics. Um, but along with that came the sense that this was dirty politics. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, there were some accusations of uh, corruption, uh, bribery, um, but also what is appropriate, what was inappropriate. Uh, women were not willing to um, get into those spaces. It made them doubly reluctant uh, to move into those, uh, those spaces. So this is a male assistant professor at the, the bottom court uh, from Pakistan, um, uh, recognizing again that uh, the, at high levels the leadership game is quite a dirty game uh, and you had to be ready to um, uh, deal with those, um, those issues. What are the cultural, cultural dispositions associated with leadership then? Um, we've talked about um, the gendered cultures of leadership and this, this quotation uh, illustrates how masculine uh, this is. Uh, there's a masculine aggressivity that is associated with what it is to be a good leader. Yeah. Um, you're not selected for the role in the interview if you don't look like you can kill something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a very powerful quote. Um, I think that echoes some of your data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's uh, how is leadership seen? Uh, what are the narratives that are associated with leadership? Why do women not want to get involved in this? Women, by the way, did not want to, when we asked them how they wanted to lead themselves, uh, the words that came out, uh, the dominant narratives were about participation, uh, collaboration, uh, being consultative and so on. So nothing like this aggressive, authoritative um, uh, image that's projected here. Um, in terms of the gender divisions of labor, uh, this quote here picks up on the differences of the expectations of men and women um, in the gender regimes of these uh, cultures, where again, women are strongly associated with the domestic sphere. Uh, so they're having to manage, if they're in a uh, high-level professional job, they're having to manage uh, both the home and also uh, their work at the university. And so men come home. Uh, this is a, a male head of department from Pakistan. Um, if you're in a leadership position, you have such a burden in terms of administration. 
But yes, you've got your evenings free. You can catch up then. Women cannot do that because of the domestic uh, responsibilities that they are held accountable for. And then again, what is seen as gender-appropriate behaviour, uh, very different uh, for men and women. Um, this goes back, it uh, links quite well uh, uh, to your data as well, the notion of Perda and Isat, the honour, uh, but this came from uh, data across other contexts as well. Um, uh, to join in with that networking was seen as inappropriate for women uh, and sometimes uh, explicitly sexually uh, inappropriate as well. Um, uh, but interestingly, uh, looking at the very final quotation there, one of our PVC, PVCs dresses quite flamboyantly, um, and then she was reprimanded from <laughs> this, uh, for this. Um, in the same interview, uh, the respondent talked about ragging sexual harassment of female students and how that was still going on in the university. So there's an interesting contrast in here in the disciplining of women leaders uh, for what is uh, appropriate gender-specific uh, dressing and a tolerance of this um, other form of um, uh, gender violence, in fact. Um, so um, very strong sense of what was appropriate for, for males and females coming across the data. And I think um, there, there we are. Thank you, Louise. Okay. Okay, so as we said, we asked what attracted uh, women to senior leadership, and we didn't get a great amount of data, as you can imagine, and there wasn't a lot of energy in the replies. Uh, we, we coded these up really, really quickly compared to uh, the disattractions, but the sort of things they said, some women said they liked power which is quite unusual, and I've been thinking again and again what Anne was saying today, and the God, the God uh, because of God, and I do wonder if that's because it's so gender inappropriate to be aspirational and pushy for yourself, so you attribute it to, to a male being. Uh, but power, sometimes they said that. Influence, but influence it often, and I'm not, and I'm not essentializing women and saying they're all, you know, all, all women are angels, but often women said they wanted to get into leadership positions in order to make the universities more the sort of places they wanted to, to, to work. Uh, they wanted it much less performative and uh, toxic, as Barbara was saying. Um, because of their values, they wanted the opportunity to put their values in practice. If you have a belief, belief in uh, gender equality, then you sometimes have to be in quite a powerful position in order to make that happen. Uh, very few talked about rewards, financial rewards, or being rewarded for your lifetime's achievement. Recognition came up as well uh, as quite a key issue, that, uh, that being seen, being made visible, being audible, being uh, intelligible was really important. When we asked what all the disattractions were, why, well, goodness, I mean, we just had pages of the stuff. Uh, women very rarely use the concept of neoliberalism, but they talked about the vocabulary of neoliberalism, particularly the emphasis on performance cultures. Uh, so many women were anxious about having to manage colleagues' uh, performance and underperformance. And there's, a, it, there's an ambiguity about leadership in higher education because it's often rotational and fixed term. And one moment somebody is your peer, and the next minute they're your subordinate, and you're having to appraise and discipline them and whatever. So they often use the language, the vocabulary of neoliberalism, uh, without naming it as such. 
the um, Bible talks about isolation as being other, carrying the burden of difference uh, in male-dominated cultures. But a lot of the women talked about this strain of being the only women woman on on boards, on committees, on appointment panels, being a kind of representative of all the women in the organisation, the token woman, having to carry the burden of all the women in the organisation. Women had huge expectations of women leaders uh, in, in the way that they didn't have for the men. And then a very powerful point was about uh, being a leader in any society, not just in South Asia, it disrupts the symbolic order. Women are supposed to be behind men. Women are supposed to be beneath men in the, in the organisational hierarchy. So if you have that change, then you disrupt that and you bring up a whole series, going back to Sarah Ahmed, of affective responses, uh, um, that people being uh, being led by women often feel very resentful, very ambiguous, very embarrassed, very uncomfortable. And that is what these women are having to deal with. And often they talked about it in very nebulous terms. Um, but they, they didn't have tangible evidence of this, but they could feel it all the time. They could feel resentment, they could feel hostility. Uh, the administrators who never did things properly for the female leaders, who never did them on time, who stalled, who just didn't see their authority. And they could never pinpoint this. They couldn't say, right, you are disrespecting me because I'm a female leader, because it was all slippery and like the, uh, Barbara was talking about, the micro-political relays of power nebulous, quixotic, difficult to capture, but you know it's there. And then, as Bob was saying, corruption. And the neoliberal university has been so heavily financialized, and everything has a value. And money, money is, is all that counts. And so many of the women in our study were so anxious about being uh, attached and associated with finance because they thought it left them wide open to allegations of corruption. Many of them felt that if they became a leader anyway, the common uh, discourse would be, well, you got there through nepotism, you got there because you paid somebody, so they were already in a deficit construction. Uh, they were f fearful that they'd be seen as very open to bribery. Uh, they'd be constantly having to deal with all that. Uh, difficulty. So it was seen as a, a very negative, everything to do with finance was seen as a very negative part of leadership. But very importantly was this notion that it was a predetermined script, leadership. You couldn't lead as you wanted to lead, you couldn't make changes, you couldn't influence because it was a given. And all you had to do was lead in the way that you were supposed to lead. And then the very big issue really is about whether women can influence and make changes as leaders when women so desperately lack the capital, whether it's either economic, political, social, symbolic, to redefine the requirements of the field. One person cannot make a difference. You think about within the UK, you have very few women leaders of universities. What can they do to make things different? They have to go in, they have to perform the main key, uh, performance indicators, they have to meet all the uh, audit requirements, etc. You cannot do things hugely differently. And this is what women were saying, that they would just be uh, rehearsing a script. Okay, so what, what do we say? Barriers. Well, the, the, the powers of the socio-cultural were a huge barrier. 
Uh, and this is, Barbara was saying, what counts as gender appropriate behaviour? Social class and caste, um, well, well, barriers and enablers, because uh, as, as Saida was saying, people had the social capital, had the networks, and they had people to na help navigate them through the system from a very early age. And they're also used to being leaders. Huge lack of investment in women. The vice chancellors that Barbara spoke about, not one of them had any leadership development training whatsoever. They had to learn themselves. They had to find out themselves how leadership works. These toxic organisational cultures really worked against women. And as I said, it's often at a nebulous, subterranean level. It's not always overt. Or often it was, but often it wasn't. Perceptions of leadership was just seen as not a happiness formula, to use Sarah Ahmed's term, not an object of desire. It felt like it was going to be a lot of misery, stress, difficulty for a lot of women. The recruitment and selection, most women were saying there's not even any point in applying. Uh, you'll just be rejected, so why bother? Uh, the, the, the decisions being made before we even have the interview, they're largely political and in, in many countries the leaders of universities change with the political parties. So they are in, in intensely political appointments. Family was seen as a barrier but it was also seen as an enabler uh, and there's this gender and authority was a big one, just kept <coughs> coming up again and again that we think manager, we think male. Uh, the cognitive structures of uh, leadership and corruption. And then the enablers. Now, in the internationalization of higher education was seen as hugely enabling to women. Women who were being misrecognized locally and organizationally were repositioned in a bigger global network, particularly if it was a big, uh, bigger feminist or women-only network that gave them some value. Uh, policies uh, created some discursive space, not always, not always followed through with action, but they did allow certain areas to be discussed, like gender mainstreaming or affirmative action, which we, we don't have in, in the UK. Women-only provision was seen as very important. Some of the big uh, programs like the Association of Commonwealth Universities, that was seen as a great enabler, and that allowing women to get together to talk about their needs for the leadership development. Mentoring, which I think is highly problematic, it's a very, uh, um, it has a huge amount of investment in altruism and this notion that, that you can redistribute capital uh, unproblematically in a highly competitive neoliberal global culture, but still women felt that it would help them. Um, and professional development, some sort of investment, some sort of recognition that women couldn't do it all on their own, they needed something to help them. Family, as I said, was a barrier, but it was also an enabler. We had a lot of negative data about mothers-in-law who policed the boundaries of what was gender appropriate. But then we had a lot of stuff about uh, very, people coming from academic backgrounds, having very privileged families who helped them steer their way through. Uh, also, if, they, if the family supported them, whether it was a nuclear family, an extended family, family supported them, they were more likely to take the risks uh, to go for it. And evidence. And it's so hard to have any kind of serious debate about under-representation when you don't have any evidence. And uh, as, as Barbara was saying, this is desperate need for gender-disaggregated statistics and some sort of 
uh, coordination of the statistics because all the countries in South Asia have different categories, they have different, uh, different uh, data sets, you cannot look at anything comparatively. So moving on then, let's sum up. Um, women are, there's no doubt, are being rejected. Are being rejected in South Asia, they're being rejected here. If you look at Simonetta Manfredi's study of the top leadership program, uh, she, this, the findings are the same. Women are being rejected. But women are also refusing and they're self-excluding. And it's not that they lack confidence or lack self-esteem or have to be begged and pleaded with. They're actually making strategic uh, decisions, looking at leadership and thinking, this doesn't look like much fun, thanks. Um, and that those who had entered leaderships, some of the vice-chancellors and pro-vice-chancellors, had to be really pushed. They were reluctant conscripts. And some of them were enjoying it very much once they were there. But it had not been a career choice for them. It was something they did because they were uh, persuaded. So change, when we're talking about change, um, we don't, we're not advocating just counting more women in to existing uh, systems and structures. It's not about representation. It's not about quantitative change. It's much more about revisioning leadership. Um, and making, making leadership feel more attractive to more women and men. And most importantly, to try and associate leadership less with performance, control, financial management, key performance indicators, uh, regulation, accountability, to move out of that discourse and make it more generative, generous, and ultimately gender-free. Thank you very much.